Thanks for listening to the teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church in Mullica Hill, New Jersey. We trust today's message will challenge you and move you closer to Christ. Here's pastor, teacher, and author, Phil Moser. Well, let's enjoy the Word of God together and be convicted by it. So why don't you stand with me as we read? 1 John chapter 3, I'll pick up the reading at verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death, and everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. God blesses his word. May you be seated. I want to talk to you this morning from this text about four, way, four causes or four reasons we should love others well. Again, it's a passage that's filled with love, the fact that we should love our brothers. It's also filled with words about hate, the fact that we would be hated, the fact that Cain hated his brother. And so we find four causes in this particular text for ways, reminders of how we should love others well. Now, that's important because we tend to love the people we like, okay? And we tend to kind of avoid the people we don't like. And yet this is a text that says, listen, this is how you love others well. Here they are, four of them. We should love others well because that is what Jesus did. And we're going to find that at the very beginning of this text. We should love others well because sinful habits die hard. And we're going to camp out there a little bit because the habits we have developed over time, um, are, they just die hard. And if we try to only cut off the habit without replacing it with a love for others, we're going to find that it's almost impossible to get rid of the habit. We should love others well because love is the best response to hate. Love is the best response to hate. The world hates us, but we are to love the brothers in return. And finally, we should love others well because our actions inspire others. We should love others well because that is what Jesus did. We should love others well because sinful habits die hard. We should love others well because love is the best response to hate. And we should love others well because our actions inspire, uh, inspire others. So let's take that first one real quickly. Here we go. Because that is what Jesus did. Now, if you look at the text right from the very beginning, verse 11, for this is the message that you heard from the beginning. Now, that phrase, from the beginning, we've already met and run into in the epistle of 1 John. And John, who writes this epistle, also wrote the gospel of John. And that's how he started the gospel of John. In the beginning, he said, verse John, chapter, John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, the same was in the beginning with God. The Word described there is, is, the, is the person of Jesus, and you see that a little later in the verse, when, in the passage, when it says, for the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So we know that in John chapter 1, verse 1, we're talking about God, Jesus, who was from the beginning. It's speaking of the eternality of Christ. But not only that, look again at 1 John chapter 1, verse 11, this little epistle. This is how the whole letter started. That which was from the beginning, 
which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, just like John chapter 1, verse 1. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That is clearly an explanation of the person of Jesus. And so when we come back here to John chapter 3, 1 John 3, 11, we read, for this is the message that we have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. It's not just talking about the message. It's talking about how Christ loved us. Now, just let that thought settle in for a little bit. We tend to say, oh, I love that person. We love people on the other side of the world. And then God says, listen, here's what I want you to do. Get up alongside people. You live alongside of them. I'm actually going to put some of them in your house so that you can see how effective or ineffective you are at loving. Have you ever, just a time of confession, have you ever spoken to someone on the phone who might be like a, a telemarketer or something, with greater respect and kindness than you've spoken to someone who lives in your home, right? Right? How can we talk to somebody we don't even know with love and kindness? And you say, I don't speak to telemarketers with love and kindness. Okay, that's another message, right? But here's the thing. We often talk to people we don't know with greater love and kindness than the people we know the most closely. And this is where Jesus is unbelievably such a great example for us. Just think about the people he walked the most closely with. The Apostle Peter. Jesus loves Peter in spite of Peter's three denials at the greatest trial of Christ's life. How about James and John? They had such anger problems that they were known by their anger problems, right? Sons of thunder, they were called. Jesus loved them in spite of their anger issues. You say, well, I'd love this person if they didn't have anger issues. Listen, Jesus loves even people who are named by their anger issues. Or Matthew, who had a love of money for most of his life until he met Jesus. Or Judas, who betrayed Jesus. The point is this, that one of the reasons we should love others well is because Jesus did it and modeled it for us. And so ought we to love others well. Here's the second idea. Because sinful habits die hard. Sinful habits die hard. Now, I got to take a moment and just talk uh, and and unpack a little bit of theology for you here, okay? So depending on what you grew up learning or what what church you were at, you may have learned that you have an old man and a new man. You got an old nature and a new nature, okay? I just want to kind of unpack that for a second because that's not exactly as quite as precise as it is in the Bible. The Bible says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new what? Creation. That's right. Old things are passed away. Behold, the new has come. In other words, when you become a Christian, you become a new man or a new woman. There is a new person living inside of you. And that's really important because that means you have the ability to do things that you didn't have to do otherwise. In fact, Ezekiel 36 says the same thing. God will take out of us at the moment of salvation a heart of stone and put into us a heart of flesh, which means we now have the ability to do certain things. However, however, that new man resides in a body and, 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 um, and an, an, an emotional side of, of old habits, sinful habits that die hard. And that's where I think it's so helpful to come back and say, this is the example of Cain. When you first read this, you're thinking, what is Cain even doing in this passage? But Cain is a reminder to us of just how hard it is to overcome those sinful habits. 
So before you leave this morning and say, I'm just going to love others better. That's, that's what I'm going to do. That's the thing I got from the message. I'm going to love others better. And then the moment you get in the car and someone pulls out in front of you, you hit the horn and you say a few things that a Christian shouldn't say, right? You are given an opportunity to put aside the old habits and to love others well. So just for a moment, go back with me to Genesis chapter 4. Because look, as you're turning there, look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 12. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. So let me just give you four reasons in Cain's life, when you get back to Genesis chapter 4, that old habits die hard, sinful habits die hard. They die hard because of our insecurity. They die hard because of our stubbornness. They die hard because of our pride. And they die hard because of our selfishness. But what I want you to know today is that if you placed your faith in Christ, he resides in you. This is the truth of the new covenant. He resides in you, giving you the ability to overcome these things. But they're kind of filled with the old habits. And so you have to kind of learn a new habit. You're in Genesis chapter 4. That's what I want you to look at real quickly for me. Let's just talk about each one of those, okay? Here's the first one. In our insecurity, we want to feel important. Now, take a look at this in Genesis chapter 4, verse, uh, verse 1. Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Now, stop there for a second. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when man and woman had sinned in the garden, God said, listen, um, there will come of Eve a seed who will strike down the head of Satan, right? So we kind of look back at that and say, oh, that's one day Christ coming. But many scholars believed, in fact, Martin Luther, 600, 500 years ago, actually believed that Eve thought in this moment that when she gave birth to her first son, he was the Messiah. And that would make sense. God said, you will have a seed, and that seed will uh, strike the head of Satan. And so you, you got to figure, like, she's pregnant for, a few, for nine months, and she's walking around thinking, when this baby is born, okay, he's going to take care of the errors that I did when I ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So look at how she names him. Cain actually means, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. This boy is from God. Okay? Now, you can notice in verse 2, again, she bore his brother, Abel. And Abel doesn't have a definition. Okay? And this is great because Abel's name means air, breath, or a metaphor for it, nothing. Okay. Now, can you just imagine that for a second? Imagine you go to the family reunion, which right now would be comprised of four people, okay? Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, right? Okay, but imagine you go to a family reunion. It's a big family reunion, and you're there with your brother, right? And your mom says, this is Cain. I acquired him from the Lord. This is Abel. He is nothing. Wow. You would think that the person, watch this, so important, that the person who was nothing would be the insecure one. But it's actually Cain who's the insecure one. Because all his life, he's been being told by his mom, you were from the Lord, you were from the Lord, you were from the Lord, right? Sometimes all of that man-pleasing comments only makes us more insecure. And that is the condition of Cain. In our insecurity, we want to feel important. Now watch what happens. All of Cain's insecurity comes up to an offering that is given to the Lord. And God accepts Abel's and rejects Cain. And Cain wants to feel important. Here's the second reason why these old habits die hard. In our stubbornness, we don't want to change. Okay? In our stubbornness, we don't want to change. 
It was one of those epiphanal moments for me. I'm uh, teaching my daughter, who's now a, now a mom and married and all grown up. But when she was in fifth grade, I was teaching her the metric system. And I was sitting there, and all of a sudden it dawned on me, like it was like I had this massive flashback, that there I was in fifth grade. And I was learning the metric system because everybody, everybody then was saying, Americans got to learn the metric system because that's what they're going to be. Years from now, they're going to be doing the metric system. And here I was teaching years later the metric system saying the same thing that they were still saying, that one day Americans will come over to the metric system because the whole world is over to the metric system. And it dawned on me, and I said, Ashlyn, this is crazy. Like, when I was in fifth grade, they told us to learn the metric system because we'd all be in the metric system, and nobody's in the metric system in America. And she says, that's not hard to understand. This is my 12-year-old teaching her father with great wisdom. Okay. She says, Dad, people don't like to change. And then she pauses and says, well, unless they get something out of it for themselves. Okay. Wow. That's convicting, isn't it? You and I don't like to change. There is in us an element of stubbornness that says, okay, that's good for you, but don't expect me to do that. Right? And here's what's so important. Look at what God offers Cain. Verse 7. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? Well, because you're insecure and you were disappointed when I didn't accept your offering. Verse 7, if you do well, will you not be accepted? This is so beautiful. I don't care where you are or what you've done. The God of the Christian is a God who offers second chances. Just let that settle in. He offers second chances. He says to Cain, Cain, just go back and bring another offering, and I'll accept it. Okay. But Cain doesn't want to bring another offering because Cain wants his offering to be accepted in the way that it was. Now, when you go over to Hebrews chapter 11, you read the writer of Hebrews says that Abel brought a better sacrifice than his brother. Now, some might say, well, that's because he brought an, a lamb, an animal sacrifice, and that could be, but I think there's another element here too. I don't think Cain brought the best he had. He, he kept the best he had, and he brought what he wanted to bring and give that to God. And yet, Abel looked through his entire flock and brought the best that he had to sacrifice to God. And God says to Cain, listen, Cain, just do well. And if you do well, it'll be accepted. It's that simple. God is offering grace all the way back in Genesis chapter 4. In our stubbornness, we don't want to change. Here's the third idea. And this is why these habits are hard. In our pride, we think we can stand against temptation. In our pride, we think we can stand against temptation on our own. Notice how God forewarns Cain. He says, listen, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you or contrary to you, but you must rule over it. He says, uh, Cain, if you remain in this bitterness, you are going to do something really, really bad. Okay. And Cain doesn't say a word. He doesn't even change. He doesn't even try. Why? Because in his pride, he thinks he is the exception to the rule. So let me say this real clearly. None of us are the exception to the rule. Right? 
If you live in the presence of temptation all of the time and you put up no accountability and no ability to, to have someone address you in your life or talk to you in your life, I just got news for you. Like, you are not the exception to the rule. A number of years ago, I was at a pastor's conference, and, and as I was walking uh, through the pastor's conference, um, there were thousands of people there. All of a sudden, this guy comes up to me and says, Phil, 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 I haven't seen you like in a long time. And it was amazing that he recognized me, but he did, okay? And he said, I haven't seen you in a long time. And he said, he, and we started talking. He was a student of mine from uh, two or th- two and a half decades ago. And uh, we started talking, and he stopped, and he turned. As he was walking away, he stopped, and he turned, and he came back and said, and I need to thank you for something. He said, when I was in college, um, you gave a message on accountability. And when we went back that night in, in um, our dorm room, the guys who were in that dorm room, we all got out of bed in the middle of the night, and we got down in a circle, and we started confessing sins to one another that we'd committed. And he said, we made a commitment that night, I made a commitment that night, that I would never go more than, more than two weeks without some degree of accountability in my life. And he said, while I've watched others fall around me, it is that pattern that has allowed me to remain in ministry down in Mexico for all these years. And I remembered thinking as he left, like, I don't even think I've maintained that pattern. Why not? Because pride steps in and we think we can stand. If you have sins that are private to you, this is why James 5.16 says, if we confess our sins, 1 John 1.9, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. But James 5.16 says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. There is a benefit to us saying, pride is telling me I can stand against the temptation, but I can't. Okay? These are the old habits. In our insecurity, we want to feel important. In our stubbornness, we don't want to change. In our pride, we think we can stand against temptation. And here's the last one. In our selfishness, we just want to be exalted. In our selfishness, we want to be exalted. Which is why in the text, all of a sudden, Cain calls his brother into the field because his brother is exalted, but he is not. Right? I just want you to imagine what it must have been like I don't know how that offering was offered. We do know in the Bible that at times, God just brought fire down, like with Elijah, just brought fire down to consume the altar, consume the offering. Maybe that's what it was like. Maybe Cain put his offering, secondhand wheat, up on the altar, and Abel put his best ram and his flock up on the altar, and then, boom, lightning falls on Abel's offering and nothing happens to Cain's. However it took place, we know this, that Cain knew that his offering had been rejected and Abel's had been accepted. And in his selfishness, he wanted to be exalted. I came upon this statement this week in study by John Stott, who comments on this particular passage. Jealousy, hatred, murder is a natural and terrible sequence. It's a sequence. You see it, don't you? Jealousy first. You want what somebody else has. Hatred. I don't really hate them. Yeah, but you're not thinking of them in a loving way. You want what they have. Murder follows. It's a natural and it's a terrible sequence. In fact, you can see this in Genesis chapter 4, verse 8. 
Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. Now, I've isolated the word spoke because you can't see it in the English language, but the word spoke is a word that speaks of intention, which means Cain didn't say accidentally get into the field with Abel and then kill him. Cain spoke to Abel, said, hey, let's go out in this field together with the intention of killing him. Okay. That's just unbelievable. This is malice. This is, this is a murder. This is an intention to actually take a life. It's not a, whoops, he stumbled, he hit a rock, I threw a rock, it hit him in the back of the head. This isn't some kind of accidental homicide. This is the real thing, right? Cain intends to kill his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him, right? And then I love the way the Lord answers this. Cain, where is Abel, your brother? I do not know him. I'm my brother's keeper, he says. The Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Brother, brother, brother. Cain, this was the young brother you were supposed to love that you were to care for. But because of insecurity, stubbornness, pride, selfishness, you have actually killed him, not protected him. Jealousy, hatred, murder is a natural and terrible sequence. I started thinking, what would happen if we changed all of those words? Okay. How about this? Gratitude, love, service is a supernatural and beautiful sequence. What if you took all the people in your world that you're a little jealous of, that you're a little bothered by, that get under your skin? What if you looked at them with gratitude? What if you followed that up with love? And what if you look for ways, loving kindness is an expression, an English word that speaks of our love shows itself up in kindness. What if you look for ways to serve them? You say, I can't do that. You don't know how hard these people are to live with. That's right. That's a supernatural, but it's a beautiful sequence. Supernatural and beautiful. The first one is easy. It's just natural. The second sequence, gratitude, love, and service is supernatural. Let's go back to the text in 1 John again. These are reasons we should love others well, because that's what Jesus did, because sinful habits die hard, and the best way to kill those sinful habits is to move over into a loving habit, how we're going to love others. Here's the third one, because love is the best response to hate. Because love is the best response to hate. Now, look at the text again. Here we go, verse 13. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. There it is, okay? If you are after the world's approval, um, you're not going to have the world's approval if you're living out Christ. You can expect the world to hate you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. I love this. Notice how hate is in verse 13. Love is in verse 14. We say that love is the best. Uh, love is the best response to hate. And you notice something else here too. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now, for just a moment, let me pause there. The text is not saying that a murderer could never come to faith in Christ, or else the Apostle Paul, who claims to be the greatest sinner of all times, the Apostle Paul, we would not expect to see in heaven. 
What the text is saying is this, and I like Warren Wiersbe's commentary on it. The issue here is not whether a murderer can become a Christian, but whether a man can continue being a murderer and still be a Christian. And the answer is no. And ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. The murderer did not once have eternal life and then lose it. He never had eternal life at all. In other words, you would not maintain a pattern of continuing to take people's lives, or can I just be really clear here, or hating them and claim to be a Christian. You would have no assurance of your salvation because you would be treating them as if you yourself were an unbeliever. You could put about anything you want in there. Maybe gossiping about them. Maybe tearing them down. Maybe spreading rumors about them. It's not to say that you wouldn't have done that, but that you'd repent of that, that you wouldn't continue in that and still assure yourself that you're a Christian. Love is the best response to hate. And one of the great things about traveling to Poland is that I learned things about Poland that I didn't know. So about a couple months ago, I was on a plane heading to Fort Worth for a counseling conference. And as I was going there, um, I just realized that God was, as the books were starting and I was working on the children's book, God was starting to provide like um, God appointments all around me. And so I, I came, I got pretty bold and just started talking to people all around me. Like, are you a God appointment? Are you a God appointment? Okay, I'll talk to you later. Okay, like I was just looking for those God appointments. So I sit on the plane next to this couple coming back and uh, I say to them, hey, are you guys from Texas? The husband says, I'm from Texas. And I'd already told him, I saw a cross tattoo on his arm. And so I said, hey, I see you got a cross. Are, are, are you a Christian? And a little bit of a conversation. I realized he probably didn't really understand what I was asking, all right? Um, he said, no, I just like a cross. And so we talked about the gospel a little bit. And, and uh, so I'm finishing the conversation. I said, so are you from Texas? Because now I've already told him, you know, if you're a Christian, I just need you to pray for me because I'm writing this children's book. We need a lot of prayer and on and on. I just blurt the whole thing out again. And I look at her and I say, are you from Texas? And you know what she says? She says, no, I'm from Poland. Right? I said, are you kidding me? I'm going to be in Poland, right? Thank you for what your people are doing. And this is how she answered. Okay. Just, just listen to this. This is great. She said, the Polish people say we're doing for others what no one ever did for us. Now, I didn't understand that because I wasn't paying attention in world history in high school, okay? Uh, but I didn't understand what was meant by that. But I'll tell you what, when I got to Warsaw, I understood. This is old city Warsaw. Now, we went down there one night for dinner, and we walked around a little bit. And when you come to Old City, it's surrounded. It, it, it looks like Prague, at Czech Republic. It looks like buildings that are 600 years old, right? And I said to the pastor who was with us, I said, Tomek, this is incredible. How did this survive the war? How did this Old City Warsaw survive World War II? He said, it didn't survive World War II. This was Old City Warsaw. I said, how does it look like it's still 600 years old? He said, because the Polish people rebuilt it to look exactly like that. He said, Phil, are you not familiar with the Warsaw Rebellion? Right. Uh, no, I wasn't paying attention in high school. Okay. Um, he said, the Warsaw Rebellion was where the people of Warsaw stood up against Hitler. And he said, I will make Warsaw the example so that every other city will know they need to submit. And so he executed 200,000 and displaced 700,000 and said to his armies, destroy every bit of that city, return it to rubble. Right. 
In fact, as we walked out of Old City that night, we came to this statue. It's the memory of the little insurrectionist because in the Warsaw Rebellion, this is an eight-year-old boy who is fighting the Nazis. An eight-year-old boy was the youngest soldier with a gun in his hand, and a nine-year-old little girl was the youngest nurse to serve the people who were being obliterated in Warsaw. And then for a moment, I understood that when the Polish people opened up their borders and invited the Ukrainians to come, they were doing for others what no one had ever done for them. It's a beautiful expression of when hate has been offered you, love is the best response to hate. Now, just let me bring that home for a second. We may not be on a national scale like that, right? We all have individuals who have been cruel to us, who have been harsh to us, who have been mean to us. If you choose to just dwell on that, guess what? You're going to become a hateful person. You're going to become a bitter person. The best thing you could do with the people who have treated you poorly is to find active, conscious ways to demonstrate love to them. That's right. Because in doing so, what ends up happening is you end up guarding your own heart from the hatred that's settling in. You say, well, they won't accept any love from me. Well, then find ways to do it that they don't even know about. Give to them anonymously. Do something for them through someone else so that they don't know it's you. But, but find a way to respond to hate with love. Because it guards your heart as well. Here's the last one. We should love others well. We should love others well because our actions inspire others. We should love others well because our actions inspire others. Right out of chapter 3, verse 16, by this we know love. This is how we know it. This is how we know what real love is. He laid down his life for us. There it is. Jesus Christ's actions, dying on the cross for us, inspire us to love others. In fact, uh, in a world that doesn't understand anymore even what love is, Um, I think this is the best definition. It's just a one-word definition. Here it is. In a word, the best definition of biblical love is sacrifice. That's it. It's sacrifice. The best definition of biblical love is sacrifice. Look back with me at this text again and see how it goes in verse 17. But if any one of you has the world's goods, that is, you have something, and you see your brother in need, and yet you close your heart against him, how does God's love abide in you? It doesn't, because love is sacrifice, and all you're doing is sacrificing what they have for you. So capturing that sacrifice word, here's how it works. Look, if I love you, I will sacrifice my wants for your needs. If I have goods, I'll sacrifice what I wanted to get for what you need. If I love myself, I'm going to sacrifice your needs for my wants. And I'm going to find ways to do that. I'm not going to pay attention to your needs. I'm not going to ask you good questions about your needs. I'm not going to plug in and, and, and think in terms of how I can help you with your needs. I'm not, I don't want to know because I don't want to make a, I want to demonstrate love of myself, which means I'm going to sacrifice what you need for what I want. And here's the truth in the scriptures. That that's never the way that God wanted it. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And note this in verse 18. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. 
You know why we're supposed to love in deed and truth? Not only because it confirms our words, but I can say to someone I love them and nobody else knows it. But if I start doing actions of love towards the other person, people can see that. They can see that. And they, therefore, can be inspired because our actions inspire others. Jason and Asa and will tell you this, that we went to Poland expecting to be an encouragement to people. But the overwhelming weight of all of their sacrifice met a pastor there in one of the final days, and you'll hear some of his testimony because I videoed some of it, and we'll play some of that next Sunday night, who is serving, who is serving Ukrainian refugees in the Czech Republic. That's his calling. That's where his church was. He can't even get to his parents who still live in Mariupol, right? And he walks into his house, and he says to me, um, on the way in, he says, there's a refugee dog, there's a dog right there. He said, that came in with a refugee couple. We walk in the house. He said, there's a refugee parakeet. Okay. The parakeet made a lot of noise. Okay. It's a refugee parakeet. What are you, what are you going to do with him? Right. He introduced me to other refugees who were in his home. He said, I'd sit down with you in my office, my pastor's office, but here he opens up the door. Mattresses, just mattresses. Okay. It's no longer an office. He said, it's a bedroom. He said, you know, I couldn't speak to my parents for two and a half months in Mariupol, I didn't even know what was going on. This is what I told God. God, I can't reach them. I will take care of the people you have given me here. Please take care of my parents there. And I think I sacrifice by going to Poland. When you and I begin to see other people's sacrifices, it inspires us. And just imagine for a moment when other people begin to see your sacrifices, it inspires them. And that's what we learned from 1 John. We should love others well because that is what Jesus did, because sinful habits die hard, because love is the best response to hate, and we're going to see some of that in our lives, and because our actions inspire others to love better. Father, it's been a privilege to look to your word this morning, to be reminded in the text um, Again, in such a beautiful way, in such an objective way, that love is about how you have lived for us, how you came to die for us so that we could have eternal life. And therefore, you encourage us to live that way for others. Thank you for how humbling it is when we actually do it, for the fact that we know we don't go and our own strength, our own ability, but we only go in, in your strength and in your power. Lord, I pray that we would become a people that would love others in such a way that they would say, why are you doing that? Why, why are you caring like that? Why are you responding to me like that when I responded to you so hatefully? Lord, may we be able to do that in such a way that we can say, that's what Jesus did for me. And I just want to do likewise. Lord, I know there's relationships here today where there's pain and suffering and difficulty and hurt, maybe even hatred. And I pray that this morning's message would bring conviction there. May your Holy Spirit do that work through the word. I know there's people here who have been mistreated, been treated poorly, who have had rumors and gossip perhaps said about them. I would pray, Lord, that today's message would comfort them 
that we would find that you have loved us in such a way that we indeed can love others. So we thank you for that this morning. Help us live out this love, so great a love that you had for us in our other relationships. In Jesus' name, amen. We trust you've been encouraged by today's lesson. For resources to help you move forward in Christ, we invite you to check out our website, aboutfbc.org, or our Facebook page, Fellowship Bible, Mullica Hill. Hill.